Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> So before we get started today, I do want to take a moment to tell you a little bit about one of our friends, Warby Parker. Warby Parker handles high-quality eyewear. Prescription eyewear shouldn't cost you more than a plane ticket or a new iPhone. They engage with their customers directly through their website, and they're able to provide high-quality, good-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. How do we know that? Well, last season, Nelson W. Piles tried out their program. So he got five pairs of eyeglasses, got the try them on for five days. Of course, no obligation to buy. Ships out to you for free and includes a prepaid return shipping label to ship back glasses after you try them out. Nelson says he not only loved how convenient it was, but he also thought the people were super nice. And he had a chance for his wife and kids and his friends to take a look at his glasses before he picked them out and tell him which ones they thought looked best on him. Now, if you go over to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked, you can order your free home try-on today. Glasses start at $95, which includes prescription lenses, and the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And now available, you can even get blue light filtering lenses. Now, if you have an iPhone X, you can also download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, which allows you to try on the glasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. You might be wondering, how do you submit your glasses prescription? That part's easy. You can choose to either enter your prescription directly on the website during checkout, email a picture, or scan the prescription to prescriptions at warbyparker.com. That's prescriptions at warbyparker.com. You can also give them your doctor's contact information, and they will contact your doctor directly. Again, if you head on over now to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked, that's warbyparker.com forward slash wicked. You will get your free home try on today. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> Today's story, The Man in Number 23, by Christopher Long, is told by Louis Pollard and features a custom score by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. He's here. His car just pulled up. I suppose I should be thankful. This place is a little out of the way, although after I've told him my story... You might think I've lost my mind, if I'm lucky. 
This all began for me when I lost my job. My department went in one morning to find our computers gone and our desks locked. No rumours, no warnings, nothing. Going home that day, the world seemed so empty. The roads, which had been crammed with commuters only minutes before, were deserted. There were no kids being dragged to school, no impatient queues lingering in their bus stops. When I got home, even my neighbours were quiet, which was surprising. They weren't known for volume control. My family had never really liked me living in that flat, but it felt like home to me. Cheap, comfortable, close to town. Besides, it offered a constant supply of interesting neighbours. I got to see a lot of them after I was made redundant. Once the postman learnt I was in all day, he unofficially deputised me. Any letters that required a signature, or parcels too big to fit through someone's letterbox, came to me. That was how I met Charlie, who made waxworks. Louise and Martin, the Eclipse Chasers. Edith, the woman who collected antique cat skulls. The man who lived across from me, number 23, had always intrigued me the most. He kept odd hours, often coming and going in the early hours of the morning, normally with a large, heavy-looking bag over his shoulder. Sometimes he stayed out for weeks on end before reappearing, looking worse for wear. I never got the chance to speak with him until the postman arrived with a rather mangled parcel for number 23. You won't have to go far with this one, he said. And you can tell him it came like that if he says anything. I assured him it'd be fine, and I left it by my door. Although he wasn't wrong, the package was a mess. The sides were dented, the paper was creased and stained with what I could only assume was mud. Handwriting was thick, brutal, almost childlike. The longer the parcel sat there, the quicker I wanted rid of it. I was convinced the neglect was threatening to leach into my home. As soon as I saw my neighbour resurface, I went over to his door, struggling to keep hold of his shabby delivery. I was alarmed to find it felt damp. As I waited for him to answer, I offered a silent prayer that it hadn't leaked onto my carpet whilst it outstayed its welcome. What? He was wrapped in a ratty old dressing gown, toweling at his wet grey hair. Uh, The postman left this whilst you were away. At the sight of his parcel, he recoiled. He visibly took a step back before he collected himself and retrieved it from me. The way he took it and held it at arm's length, so gingerly, so grimly, it made me wonder what I had had in my flat all that time. Once he had hold of it, he quickly disappeared, slamming the door in my face without so much as the thank you. I made a mental note to refuse any more posts from him after that. As the weeks passed, there was no sign of my ignorant neighbour. His door was always shut, his curtains were always closed. I began to wonder if I missed him sneaking off again. I was coming back from an interview early one morning when I heard something smash inside number 23. I rushed over and knocked at his door. You alright in there? He didn't reply, so I tried the handle. It was unlocked. Wearily, I peeked into the gloom. Number 23 didn't seem like much of a home to me. It wasn't warm or welcoming. It felt more like a nest or a burrow. A place to sleep and hide from prying eyes, ideal for a man like him. The walls were stripped bare, either half decorated or half undecorated. It was hard to be sure which. There were no carpets, 
only exposed floorboards. A few photo frames showed landscapes and wildlife. Most hadn't even been hung on the wall, they'd just been abandoned on the floor. There was a flickering glow coming from under the door at the far end of the hall, casting out over the dark lines of the floorboards, defining them in a cold glare that wavered like sleek candlelight. I glanced back into the corridor before I took another step into the flat. I can't tell you how badly I wish I'd simply turned around and gone home that night. Only there was a sound coming from his lounge. Faint. Mechanical. Not unlike startled birds' wings or speeding bike spokes. It was rhythmic. Quick. It drew me into a ramshackle living room. There was a broken sofa, scrapes of carpet on the floor being held down by clusters of used plates and piles of books. There were landslides of loose photos wherever you tried to step. In the centre of the room was an old movie projector, casting a blinking white light onto a bare wall. I'd been hearing the finished reel flickering through the machine over and over again, the loose end catching on the metal. There was no sign of my neighbour until he stepped out of his kitchen, a blood-soaked towel wrapped tight around his palm. What do you want? Uh, sorry, the, the door was unlocked. I thought you were being robbed. Nothing worth steered in here. Uh, is your hand okay? Cut myself. Let me take a look. It's fine. It wasn't fine. He'd managed to leave glass splinters buried deep beneath his skin. And his lights didn't work. We ended up back in my kitchen where I cleaned him up. After he stopped squirming, he calmed down a little. I don't know if it was my imagination, but he appeared better for being out of his home. What happened? I asked him. Stupid, really. That was all he'd say on the matter, so we talked about the weather before we got onto jobs. I'm a nature photographer, he said, as if it was nothing special. That sounds interesting. Mum got me into it. She let me have Dad's old camera after he left us. We'd go out into the countryside and she'd point at the birds and the flowers, trees and insects. As I got older, I started going by myself. I joined clubs and learned to take better pictures. I won a few prizes, got in some magazines. That's how I got involved with TV. Wow, nice work if you can get it. I saw some amazing things. While I had the stomach for it, before I started working with marine life, the producers offered me a chance to go work out on the boats using submersible drones for shots of whales, dolphins, that sort of thing. I was like a little kid with a new toy, before they told me to go deeper. The further I dove into that ocean, the more I started to struggle. It was like seeing hell down there, deep beneath the waves, no light, no warmth, nothing but hideous, mutated things waiting to ensnare you, torture you, feed on you in the dark. A wild, haunted look sharpened my neighbour's hollow eyes. A trace of dark blood was showing through the bandage on his injured hand as his hand bowled into a tight fist. The things I saw down there, you wouldn't believe they were real. You wouldn't think they were from this planet. Ravenous tangles of eels, ghostly shoals of squid, great floating tendrils drifting. Gossamer lures, Needle-sharp teeth and carnivorous mouths, lethal displays of dancing colours. It wasn't nature, it wasn't natural. After a while, I couldn't cope. 
I couldn't handle being so far out to sea, with no land in sight and, and all those nightmares lurking beneath my feet. The producers wanted me to watch it hunt and feed, but I couldn't do it. I started ignoring their brief. I took the drone deeper. I found the seabed, hoping it was deserted. Only it wasn't. There were worms down there that looked like writhing internal organs, elongating gelatinous slugs. I saw the bones of the dead, picked clean, claimed as nesting grounds, knotted with blind, quivering masses of demented life. Then one night, I saw something truly impossible. He shuddered at the thought of it. What did you see? The way he looked at me made me wish I'd kept quiet. I could show you. In fact, maybe it would be good if you did watch it with me. His chair scraped on the floor before he quickly rushed back into his wreck of a flat. I followed after him, watched him thread the film back through the projector. As he worked, his actions took on a dead-eyed determination. He seemed set to see something through to the bitter end. You won't see it straight away, he told me as the projector whirred into life. Now, I've never professed to be a fan of nature, not even as a little boy. I never had a pet. I rarely went to the zoo or a safari park. Still, I would have said that I had no problem with the environment. All that changed the moment I saw his footage. The life he captured down there had evolved so far away from the sun that it had become monstrous. Everything I saw, scuttering and slithering across the salty ocean floor, made me want to seal up all the taps and plug holes in my home. But as the film went on, something distracted me from those hypnotic aberrations. That's impossible. You can see them, can't you? Footprints. I could see bare human footprints walking across the seabed. It has to be a trick of the light, or or maybe a a dead body. What? Walked out of a shipwreck. Look at the pattern. Think about the weight needed to leave those prints. No, that's the impression of a whole healthy foot. Two of them, a complete set, a matching pair. Uh, But... Keep watching. There was something bordering on madness in his jubilant, victorious tone. I watched the drone follow the footsteps right up until the moment it reached their source. My God! My neighbour began to laugh as the reel suddenly entered, unspooled and began to flick over and over again against the projector. You saw him! You saw him! As insane as it sounds, there had been a man standing at the end of those footprints, dressed in a ruined suit. He'd had his back to the camera, like he'd been admiring the view. His dark hair and clothing caught up in the currents. I watched as he turned and seen us. He'd smiled before the film had died, with his eyes directly looking into mine. I remember thinking that there must have been some corruption in those final frames, because his knowing smile had seemed to move before the image turned to flickering, blinding white. His teeth had seemed to squirm inside his grinning mouth. My neighbour rapidly set it back up and played those final moments for me again, urging me to watch the steady path of footprints that led to the pale, bare, dirt-covered feet. 
the torn and stained clothes, the man's hair caught on the wash of the waves, the lack of bubbles rising from his mouth, even that smile as he turned to see us. I don't think I'll ever forget that smile. Turn it off, I begged. Please. Imagine how I felt. Out on a boat, knowing he was under us, able to walk about, maybe even follow the submersible back up. Not that it ever returned. After the signal cut, I couldn't re-establish contact. Later, after I'd left, my replacement took another one out to the same spot. There was no sign of it, or the footprints. By then, I'd become obsessed with getting the footage. This was after my breakdown, after they sent me back to the mainland. I begged the film company to send me the footage. I offered to pick it up. I even offered to review it there, but they wouldn't let me. Then, one morning, they called to say they'd changed their mind. It all sounded a bit hasty to me. I even had to give them my address again, but I wasn't about to say no. It arrived far sooner than I expected. I was lucky you were in to take it for me. There was my thank you, not the one I wanted anymore. He wanted to show me the footprints again, but I refused. I needed to go home, try and make sense of what I'd seen, and I wish I could say that's where my story ended. Only those bizarre events weren't done with me yet. For a few weeks, I barely saw my neighbour. I'd applied for a new job, and, rather surprisingly, been hired. One evening, as I headed back from the bus, the heavens absolutely opened. I was soaked by the time I got back to the flats. Normally, I had to scan through the front doors, but someone had left them wide open, which was unusual. There was no sign of anyone in the lobby, so I pushed the doors closed behind me and waited for the lift. That's when I spotted the floor. Heading through the lobby and up the stairs was a set of wet, bare footprints. I tried to tell myself it was nothing, that someone had come out in the rain and kicked off a soggy pair of shoes, only those puddling traces felt like an instruction. They set me on edge. I followed them up, praying they didn't lead to my floor. As I pursued them, there was no denying the strong smell in the air, salt water and rotting seaweed. It turned my stomach as I got to my floor and followed them right to the door of number 23. It was locked. I pressed my ear to the door but couldn't hear anything. I braced myself before I knocked, terrified at the thought of seeing that strange twisted smile in the flesh so close to my home. There was no answer. I tried again and thought I heard movement. Slow footsteps coming closer to the other side of the door. They stopped on their side, but no one answered. When I tried again, I simply walked away, unsure of what to do. I slipped back into my flat and waited. I changed out of my wet clothes, made a mug of something hot, and watched the corridor through the distorted view of my spy hole. I don't know how long I waited there but my drink went cold, my legs went to sleep, my hunger came and went. Still, no one came out of that flat. In the end, deciding I couldn't do much more, I went to bed. I don't even think I need to tell you who I dreamt about that night. 
The next morning, I woke early and showered quickly. Still aching from my vigil, I checked number 23 to see the door had been left wide open. I quickly ran across the corridor and crossed the threshold. The place was still in such a state that I couldn't really tell if anything untoward had happened in there. Not until I saw my neighbour, sprawled out across his threadbare sofa, his limbs as an awkward tangle, his skin paler than normal, his face and hair soaking wet. I tried to wake him. There was no use. I could barely find a pulse. I couldn't find a phone either, so I sprinted back to my flat and dug out my mobile. I called the emergency services and they came as fast as they could. But it was too late. My neighbour was dead. I attended his funeral. Not many other people did. His belongings were cleared away and the flat went on sale. I paid no mind as prospective owners came and went. I kept myself to myself. I didn't know what to tell the neighbours who asked how the man in 23 had died. I wasn't even sure I wanted to believe it myself. One day, as I set off for work, I saw a furniture truck pulling up. Another day, I got home and I saw some carpet fitters leaving. The new people must have been moving in. Although I didn't see my new neighbour until I woke to the sound of someone knocking at my door very early one morning. I stumbled up to answer it only to find they weren't knocking at my door at all. It was old Mrs. T, knocking at number 23. She rarely ever left her flat. But there she was, leaning on her Zimmer frame and knocking with a thin, shaking fist. I was worried she might have gotten herself confused until my new neighbour answered and smiled at the sight of her. My new neighbour. There was no mistaking that face. He looked just as he had in the footage. I nearly screamed at the sight of him standing there just across from my door. It took all of my strength to dare to look again. He was pale, smartly dressed, his hair was slicked back, soaking wet. He looked so calm as he ushered the old woman into his home and closed the door behind her. I wanted to run over and warn her. I wanted to warn them all, but what could I say? What what could I do? I kept checking to see if she came out before I went to work, but there was no sign of her or my new neighbour. Looking back, I'm not sure why I didn't move out at the sight of him. I'm not sure why I kept going home every night. Just seeing the lights on in number 23 started to make me feel ill. I was too stunned to act, I suppose. I mean, surely it was coincidence. No human being could have survived down there. This all had to be some elaborate prank. That's what I told myself to cope with the undeniable impossibility of it all. I heard some of the other residents talking about him. They seemed to think he was incredibly friendly. I tried to warn them to keep their distance, but they wouldn't listen to me, and I had no proof to persuade them. I saw Miss Teague shuffle back into number 23, morning after morning. I say shuffling, but she was actually walking better. She didn't even seem to need her frame anymore. She began to take other people with her. Through my spy hole, I could tell she was looking a little paler herself. Her hair, always wet. The people who went in with her began to look the same way as they took more people in with them. 
he greeted all of them with a smile. Over the next few weeks, I was often woken by someone knocking at number 23 in the early hours. I became obsessed with it. I had to see who was going to him. I had to try and understand what he was doing in there. First, the elderly called on him. Then the young mothers appeared with their children in tow. One by one, they all went into number 23. I needed to see how long each visit took, so I started calling in sick. Work was getting in the way of my stakeout. After a few days of watching number 23, my employers called. I'd been let go. I didn't care. I needed answers. When I saw my neighbours walk back out into the corridor, they always looked paler, calmer, their hair and faces wet. Their ailments disappeared over time, as did their stresses and concerns. Everyone who came out of that flat always looked dazed after their first visit, but they kept coming back. Some of them, the way they walked back to their own floors after that visit, it was as if they were learning to walk again. The man in number 23 smiled as they came and went. I watched that smile closely. I saw it twitch, exactly like it had on film, only this wasn't a projection. There was no chance of it being a defect or a fault. One time, I saw his teeth nearly wriggle free from his mouth altogether, unfolding to reveal strange little joints of ligament and glimpses of carapace. The sight caused me to recoil. My foot kicked against my door. The sound drew his attention. His head snapped up and that smile of his slowly dried away. He stared at my door before he withdrew back into number 23. The next morning, I heard a knock at his door and responded as I always did. I went to see who was visiting him. Only I had to stifle a panicked yell when I looked out of my spy hole and saw my neighbour looking back in at me. He was standing right outside my door. The sight of him drove me back. My hands clamped over my mouth. When I dared to look back, there was no sign of him. Things became very strange after that. Whenever I met anyone in the lobby or the lift, they always insisted I went and see the man at number 23. He can make you feel better, they said. He's dying to meet you. Then there was the nightly noise from the other flats. It would have bothered some people, but I liked it. It made me feel at home. But as more and more people visited my neighbour, the flats around me began to fall silent at sunset. As more of them went to him, the silence grew stronger. I hated that silence. I loathed it. I could feel it pressing against the walls of my home until something took its place. I don't quite know how to describe it. It was like taut and wet, like slippery violin strings. It was like twisting, scratching, almost chittering. It sounded like something you expect to hear from an insect, but was louder, and it was coming from all around me, through the ceilings and the walls, through the floor. One night it grew so loud that I considered leaving. I grabbed my coat, but when I checked outside my door, he was waiting there for me. The sight stopped me in my tracks. Only, as it turned out, he wasn't waiting for me at all. A lift arrived and I watched a homeless man drifting 
rather serenely into number 23. I waited all night, wondering when he would reappear. Only he never did, although some of the other residents went down into number 23. After that, it happened every night without fail. The flats would fall silent at sunset, then the noise would begin. A stranger would appear at my door and happily meander into number 23 as if caught on some phantom tide. Not long after, some of my neighbours would follow them in. I never saw one of those new visitors again. By this point, I wasn't eating or sleeping. I was a prisoner in my own home. I had to know what was happening over there. I had to see it for myself. Sleep starved, I formulated a plan. After the residents gathered in number 23, things always went quiet. If I was careful, and as long as no one locked the door, I'd be able to sneak in there, maybe even get some proof. So, the next night, I waited for that terrible sound to rise. I waited for the lift to arrive with their guest and my neighbour to lead them in. I waited for the others to come down, and then I gave it a few minutes before I unlocked my front door and slipped nervously over to number 23. I went slowly, carefully. I breathed as easily as my adrenaline would allow, tasting metal at the back of my throat. I took hold of the handle to that familiar door, and the door that haunted my nightmares now. It was unlocked. I snuck through and closed it as quietly as I could. There was no one in the dark hall. I waited for my eyes to adjust before I moved towards the lounge in trembling steps. I can't say for certain that my life would have been easier if I'd never returned to number 23. I don't know that my neighbours would have left me alone for long. I do know that I would have been spared the horror that I found waiting for me beyond that door. My neighbours were feasting on the body of that young man. There's no other way to describe it. His clothes had been torn away to reveal flesh. He was lying on his back in the middle of the room, laid out on a plastic sheet, and they were gathered round the body. They had been good people once, normal people. Now they were hunkered over him, kneeling with their heads bowed. Only their mouths weren't reaching down and taking bites from him. No, their mouths were being forced open by something that reached out from inside them. Hooked little wriggling legs that had extended out to hold their jaws apart. Protruding past that fidgeting blossoming flower was what I took to be a tongue until I saw it tear off into the man's flesh. Not chewing or cutting the meat off him, no. It was hacking the skin clear from his bones. The body of it was muscular, black, wet and scaly. As those things withdrew and extended from deep inside my neighbours, I saw their throats flex to accommodate the movement. I heard them swallowing it was when I noticed their food was awake. His eyes were open. There was a comfortable smile on his lips. The 
terror of that moment drove the panic past my lips. I couldn't help it. My neighbours turned to face me. Those black, slick, lithe forms retracting back into their bodies as they rose to their feet. Those strange little legs around their mouths began to wriggle and that screeching, scraping sound grew louder. It nearly blinded me, overwhelmed me, consumed me. I turned and bolted for the front door before they could take me. Something lashed out, collided with me. The force of it sent me stumbling forwards. The pain nearly drove me to my knees, but I couldn't stop. Momentum drove me forward. Momentum and fear of dying in that dark, dreadful place. I got into the corridor and ran for the stairs, for the lobby, for the street. When I was outside, I dared to look back. And they were standing at their windows, all of my neighbours, with those those eel-like things wriggling free of their open mouths. My neighbour had clearly been busy. I fled to the nearest bus stop and got myself a ticket to the furthest destination I could afford. I kept doing that, until I came here, and now I'm burning through my credit card renting this place week after week. I don't know what else to do. You can still see the wound one of my neighbours left in my back. The doctor who treated it said it looked like I'd been attacked by a small shark. I found an expert online who might have been able to help. I called him here and asked if he would meet. Now he's here, for better or worse. The strange thing is that a colleague of his called an hour ago. They apologised for not ringing me sooner about his condition. Apparently he'd not been well. He'd taken a turn this morning after someone visited him in his office. They'd gone to visit him in hospital tonight but they found he'd disappeared. And now he's here about to knock on my door. My god. His smile. I think it's beginning to squirm in the moonlight. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes pages. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the man in number 23 to find you. (laughs) 